Hello and welcome to The Vinyl Approach, Episode 12. My name is Tom Wilmeth. I've been publishing my thoughts on music and have been involved with radio since the early 1970s. I call myself a collector of popular and unpopular music. The Vinyl Approach is a bi-weekly podcast that takes a look at a wide range of albums and artists. Last week, I answered a couple of questions about Bob Dylan that were prompted by an earlier Vinyl Approach podcast. Today, we'll have two Beatles questions that listeners have submitted. Today's first question comes from Alex, who lives near Salt Lake City, Utah. Alex writes, Dear Tom, I am a Beatles fan, and John was always my favorite. I play his anthology CDs a lot, and I thought I had most of his solo albums. But on your Beatles podcast, you spoke briefly about a couple that I did not recognize. A wedding album, and one about lions? I don't have these, and I am looking at my John Lennon Hits CDs, and I see no songs that come from albums with the titles you mentioned. So what about those? Alex, good question. Each Beatle has what I would call his backwater albums, ones that don't really align with what we expect when we think about that Beatle. For Ringo, it was his first solo album from 1970. It was a collection of ballads called Sentimental Journey. The songs are mostly from the 1940s that Ringo said he recorded to please his mother. It was an unexpected choice of material, but by recording songs from an earlier era, Ringo proved to be way ahead of the curve. Many would soon record albums in this genre, including Linda Ronstadt, Rod Stewart, Harry Nilsson, Bob Dylan, and Ringo's bandmate Paul. The Sentimental Journey album has its moments, but it's a whole lot of Ringo vocals. The record is largely forgotten today. Speaking of Sir Paul, there are a couple of ways to go for his odd releases. One has to do with a trio of electronic projects he released anonymously in the 1990s under the band name Fireman. But this gets so involved that I think we'll save the topic for another day. Maybe a full show of Fireman. Instead, a much earlier obscure project for Paul was his involvement with writing the score for a movie called The Family Way, starring Haley Mills. This 1967 soundtrack album is not really worth looking for, but it is Paul. Beatles producer George Martin did most of the composing and arranging for this project. It's said that McCartney quickly lost interest. Perhaps he was thinking about the Beatles' next album, which would be Sgt. Pepper. Chroniclers of the band say that The Family Way is technically the first solo Beatles release, but most give this distinction to George Harrison's 1968 album Wonderwall. There are similarities. Both Paul's Family Way and George's Wonderwall are film scores, but George usually gets the nod for a first solo Beatle record because he was very involved with the entire project. Harrison's Wonderwall is today seen by some as a forerunner of world music, since these instrumentals are a mix of Western and Eastern influences. In 1968, the album went largely unnoticed, even by Beatles fans. This was also true of Harrison's next solo project, 1969's Electronic Sounds. The title says it all. George was fascinated by the potential of early synthesizers. Both Wonderwall and Electronic Sounds are audio experiments and should be taken as such. Neither is light listening. I haven't played my copies of these albums in years. Maybe I should. Ringo's Sentimental Journey, Paul's Family Way, George's Wonderwall and Electronic Sounds, these albums are at the far end of the universe for solo Beatle albums. And this leads us to John, the point of Alex's question today. 
John Lennon and Yoko Ono collaborated on several albums. They began with a two-part project called Unfinished Music. Part one is a 1968 release titled Two Virgins. It gained immediate notoriety for its album cover, which showed a naked John and Yoko. The second release in this Unfinished Music series came the following year and is called Life with the Lions. I think the key word here for both albums is unfinished. I was a Beatles fan when Two Virgins came out in 1968. I had been told about the record, but because of the nude cover, no record stores would stock it. Not out in the open, anyway. Concerning the audio content found on Two Virgins, Lennon insisted that the record was, quote, saying whatever you wanted it to say. But it didn't seem to say very much to most who heard it, which weren't many. It consisted of tape loops, sound effects, and Lennon playing a bit of piano. John said he thought the record could change people, just as he had been changed by records that influenced him. John sounded hopeful and sincere. The record sounded odd. The Lennons' second in their unfinished music series was Life with the Lions. Side One is Live, a 26-minute vocal performance by Yoko Ono at her Yokoist. The other side begins with Ono singing the words of a newspaper article about her famous husband called No Bed for Beetle John. This is followed by the sound of Yoko's baby's heartbeat still in the womb. Then, two minutes of silence and twelve minutes of radio play, where we hear John and Yoko randomly channel surf or station surf on a radio. My favorite track has always been the two minutes of silence. Although not an entry in the unfinished music series, we mustn't forget John and Yoko's wedding album. This 1969 box came with a replica of the couple's marriage certificate, a photograph of a single piece of the couple's wedding cake, and a booklet of press reaction to the couple's activities. Not all of it positive press by any means. And yes, the set also included a record album. On one side of it, John and Yoko longingly say the other's name for over 20 minutes. The flip side of the album contains excerpts of interviews John and Yoko gave in Holland in early 1969 during their bed-in for peace. None of the material on these three releases would fit well beside the radio hits on a Best of John Lennon album or on any music anthology. Even John must have realized this, since the Shaved Fish collection of solo hits, which Lennon himself assembled, includes nothing from these albums. But John Lennon did release the unfinished music series and the wedding album. He wanted this material to be heard. So, Alex, the reason you may not know about these John Lennon records is because they sold poorly, were listened to less, and are not seen around much today. Those were the Lennon albums I was talking about. Thanks for asking. And by the way, all seven of the solo albums discussed today were released while the Beatles were still together as a band. Our other letter today comes from Jimmy in Marshalltown, Iowa. Jimmy writes, Dear Tom, in your Beatles episode of The Vinyl Approach, you talked about John Lennon's very few concert appearances after the Beatles broke up. George has always been my favorite Beatle, but I can't find any concert recordings by him. So what about that? Thanks for writing, Jimmy. You are having difficulty finding live recordings by Beatle George because there are not many out there. It's been said that Harrison was the first to tire of Beatlemania, and that it was George who insisted that the 1966 tour of America would be the Beatles' last. Later, when Paul proposed the idea of the Beatles touring again, or at least performing a few live dates in small venues, both George and John were pointedly uninterested. 
George had the reputation for disliking concerts, but it's not as simple as that. For example, when looking at footage of the two 1966 concerts by the Beatles in Tokyo, it's George who regularly acknowledges the audience. He repeatedly waves to the crowd and never appears sullen, and this was near the end of the Beatles touring days. Also, it was George who organized the first major live performance after the Beatles split. In 1971, Harrison staged the famous concert for Bangladesh at Madison Square Garden. The band for this charity event included Eric Clapton and fellow Beatle Ringo Starr. George shared the stage with Leon Russell and Bob Dylan and gave solid performances of his own best-known songs. Even more surprising than this one-time benefit concert, George was the first Beatle to embark on a major solo tour of America, performing 45 concerts in seven weeks. This 1974 George Harrison tour, even now, is a subject of debate. It was widely reported that audiences were unhappy with song choices and with George's hoarse vocals. Other reports were lavish in their praise of the concerts. Before the tour began, George said that people should not expect a star-studded Bangladesh extravaganza, and, of course, it was not going to be a Beatles concert. In fact, George had originally planned to avoid the Beatles catalog entirely for these shows, but tour mates Billy Preston and Robbie Shankar urged Harrison to include some Beatle numbers in his performance. George relented. Somewhat. The final set list included four Beatles songs, three written by George, and John's In My Life. The concert's focus was on Harrison's recent solo work and, to the irritation of some, on Ravi Shankar's Indian music. The emphasis on Shankar was not surprising. The tour's promotion gave Ravi Shankar equal billing to George, and those following Harrison's career should have remembered that the Concert for Bangladesh album opened with 26 minutes of sitar music. Harrison also gave plenty of room to keyboard sideman Billy Preston, who played three solo numbers, each being a million-selling top-five single. The argument could be made that Billy Preston had the superior chart record at this time, but George was a Beatle, and that's impossible to trump. With featured performances by Shankar and Preston, many complained that George wasn't featured enough, and when he did sing, Harrison played songs that the audience did not know, like Soundstage of Mind and Maya Love. Couple these unknown tunes with other songs of discontent like Sue Me, Sue You Blues and a lengthy set of unfamiliar Indian music, and you have a recipe for audience disappointment. Harrison became frustrated by what he felt were the audience's unrealistic expectations, but George did not help his own situation. In a pre-tour interview, he seemed surprised and even mystified when the interviewer told Harrison that the audience needed George to musically acknowledge his role in the Beatles. Harrison essentially said, if anyone comes to my concert expecting Beatle George, that's their problem. Harrison insisted that he was now a solo artist, and he seemed convinced that people would see him in this light, and not as a former Beatle. To his credit, the interviewer tried to point out to George the impossibility of that notion. If Harrison had acknowledged his Beatle legacy just a little more, it would have gone a long way to satisfy the audience. But maybe that's unfair. George was not the only Beatle to want fans to hear his solo work. When Paul McCartney toured the U.S. two years later, in 1976, his set list included just five Beatle songs. But McCartney's concerts did not include a lengthy set of Indian ragas, and Paul's show included 11 top 40 solo hit songs by McCartney, compared with George's four. George did have a few more hits, he just chose not to sing them. Had I been asked, I would have suggested that Harrison's concert open with a hot version of his song Don't Bother Me from Meet the Beatles and close with It's All Too Much. 
Maybe include a trippy version of Blue Jay Way. Even within you and without you would have been welcome. He certainly had the right musicians with him for it. And I mean, would it have killed him to play Here Comes the Sun? Harrison could still have included his spiritual songs and the diatribe numbers, but throw us a bone here, George. I have always thought these Harrison concerts of 1974 were patterned after Bob Dylan's tour with the band from earlier that year. Dylan would sing a half-dozen numbers to begin each concert, then the band would play the first of their two solo sets. After this, Bob would return for more songs. It worked well, but Robbie Shankar is not the band. Dylan's audiences were willing to hear the band play their best-known songs, but George's audience did not know the pieces Shankar and his group were playing. And while the band's sets were brief interludes between the main attraction at Dylan's shows, Harrison let Robbie Shankar play for nearly an hour. And as I say, add to this the solo features by Billy Preston and by band leader Tom Scott, and many felt that they were not hearing enough George, even in a concert that lasted over two and a half hours. From Paul McCartney's 1976 tour came the triple live album Wings Over America, and it is Paul's concert set that makes me think George's tour must have been problematic. Why was there never a live album released from Harrison's tour? It would have sold well in 1975 when any Beatle record was still bought in huge numbers by fans. It could have been a lavish live set on George's new Dark Horse label, guaranteeing significant income for the company. He could have released an entire concert, including Ravi Shankar's Indian music set, and let the public make up its own mind. It seemed like a logical decision now, especially with George being such a fan of three-record sets. But a live album from these concerts never appeared. Harrison would not go on tour again for 17 years. This time it was in Japan, using Eric Clapton and his band for a backing group. This handful of 1991 concerts is documented on a two-CD set which was well-received by most, but oddly enough, it was only available for a few years. Harrison's 1991 set list included eight Beatles songs and a far more approachable sampling of his solo work than he performed in 1974. So there you go, Jimmy. I hope that answers your question. If you want to hear some live performances by George Harrison, I suggest the Bangladesh album and search out the Live in Japan CD. I would also strongly recommend The Beatles Live at the Hollywood Bowl. George has his moments on there as well, and the band he's with is really tight. There are other things worth saying about this 1974 Harrison tour, like George's decision to change the words to some of his best-known songs. The lyrics of Something were altered to reflect Harrison's religious beliefs, and While My Guitar Gently Weeps was changed to While My Guitar Gently Smiles. Rolling Stone magazine spoke for many by expressing outrage over these rewrites, but Rolling Stone was harsh about this 74 tour from its inception. It said that George never forgave the American press for the way they covered these concerts, and that too is another story. In fact, the more I write about the Harrison tour of 1974, the more I have to say about it. So let's plan for another episode on George Harrison and these live shows sometime in the future. But for now, we'll call it a day. This has been Tom Wilmeth with The Vinyl Approach. If you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Sound Bites, A Lifetime of Listening. Sound Bites is available on Amazon. A quick reminder that each episode of this podcast has an accompanying song list on Spotify. The next episode may be delayed a bit as I have some summer rambling to take care of, but I will be back with you soon. This has been The Vinyl Approach. I'm Tom Wilmeth, and I'll see you next time.